Morning Valley Bible Church. Austin. Wow. You hear him singing? Man. Yes. Basso. A bulwark never failing. A bulwark is like an impenetrable wall that will not fall over, unlike my backyard fence last night. Yep. Those things happen. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We're continuing in John's Gospel, and um, we will soon be in Advent in a couple of weeks. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about Thomas and his interaction with the risen Lord. And that story is found in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. And Jesus prayed earlier in this book, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And since we believe that this word is truth, would you please stand as we read it together? John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, the word of the Lord. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Father, thank you for the word as given to us through the holy apostles as promised by Jesus' words that the Spirit would come, guide them into all truth. And so we see that fulfilled this morning in our midst. For you are with us, and you've given us your spirit and your word, and Christ dwells here today. And where we are gathered, you make yourself known in a very unique way. And so we praise you on this, the Lord's Day, where your saints are gathered, that you would speak and you would make yourself known, that you would reveal yourself, that you would show up in a powerful way in our lives today. For that purpose, we now turn to your word and ask that you would help us to understand. And all these things we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Don't be a doubting Thomas. How many of you remember that old children's song? Why worry when you can pray? Trust Jesus, he'll be your stay. Don't be a doubting Thomas. Rest wholly on his promise. Why worry, 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 worry when you can pray? Don't be a doubting Thomas. Um, can you imagine if your name whether it's Jim or Sandy or Bill or Christy or whatever it may be, through time immemorial has been associated with doubt, some, something that is not positive. And that's what has happened with poor Thomas. 
this negative trait to to say even in our culture um, for people that are not even Christians, doubting Thomas is something that people will understand. And it's not it's not a good thing. It's like a negative Nelly, right? The doubting Thomas. Um, I think he gets a bad rap. There are some things in the story that I think we can hit him on, I guess. But uh, for the most part, um, there's more to the story than this. In fact, the word doubt is not used in the text. Um, The word doubt does not appear in this text. It is really an issue of belief or unbelief from what Jesus said to him. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. That's the issue. The issue is faith. The issue is belief. The issue is not doubt. There may be an element of doubt, but that is not the core issue here. So we're going to to look at the story of Thomas and learn from him because it is given for our instruction. And once again, uh, we see a scene that only appears in John's gospel. Remember, about 93% of John's material is is, uh, original and does not appear in the other gospels. And so we jump in with the first couple of verses, verses 24 through 25, where we see that we are prone to disbelieve what we have not seen. We are apt to distrust the things that we do not see. We believe in seeing is believing for the most part. And, you know, that's not all that bad. Um, We want to have things proved to us to be true. And that seems to be the case with Thomas. And verse 24 begins this way, but Thomas, but Thomas. Remember last week we saw the story when when Jesus came. uh, He had first appeared to to Mary on that day. He had appeared to other ladies on that day. Um, Then Mary came to where the disciples were gathered in that evening on the first day of the week. And, And Jesus just comes into their midst and starts talking to them. And he gives them that commission But Thomas, oh, Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, he was not there. Now, just a little backstory on Thomas to help us to understand what's going on. Um, John introduces him as one of the 12. The 12, we we haven't seen this this term, the 12, since about chapter 6. It's used a couple of times in, in, in John's gospel. And it's a technical term for the apostles. Some people get disciples and apostles mixed up because they're similar. Um, All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Men on Tuesday morning, you're going to be looking at logic uh, in our men's study. So uh, that's that's true. So all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Of the disciples who were following Jesus, Jesus had chosen 12, and those 12 would be the apostles. And even though... Judas, one of the 12, is not gone, is gone now. In fact, he said back in chapter uh, 6, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. Judas is gone and will be replaced. But the 12 is this technical term for the new leadership. They will be the foundation of the church, the 12 apostles. And Thomas is one of them. And it's necessary for the 12 apostles to meet one of the qualifications for apostleship, which is to have seen the risen Lord. The apostle Paul states that in his writings, that he has seen the risen Lord. He becomes, as it were, the 13th of apostle, but the 12 in a technical sense. 
because the risen Lord appeared to the Apostle Paul. So it's necessary for Thomas, who wasn't there that first night, to see the risen Lord. Notice it also says in our text that he was called Didymus, which means twin. Uh, Didymus is the Greek word for Thomas, which is Aramaic. Didymus, Thomas. Didymus means twin. And uh, some of our brilliant scholars say, well, obviously they called him twin because he was a twin. To which I say, well, what do they call his twin? I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, it seemed to be his nickname, twin, Didymus. And this is the third time that he appears in John's gospel. The first time was in chapter 11. And remember in chapter 10 at the end, the religious leaders tried to kill Jesus. They tried to stone him. In the beginning of chapter 11, he learns that Lazarus, his friend, is, a, is sick and dying. And they had fled to across the Jordan out of Judea, out of the environments of Jerusalem, and they were kind of hiding out, as it were. He hears that, uh, that uh, Lazarus is dying, and he wants to go, and his disciples say, no, you can't go, Lord, to Judea, because they're going to stone you. And Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, says, let us also go that we may die with him. Doesn't sound like much of a doubter to me. I think he is a realist. And he recognizes that if Jesus goes and they stone him, then if they need to go with him and he is, he's committed to, to Jesus, I think that he is uh, one who is showing some courage in the face of the other uh, the other disciples at this point, and he's willing to go with Jesus to Judea and to Jerusalem and perhaps even to die with him. Interesting, like many times, a lot of the irony in John's gospel, he will die. He will be martyred for his faith. But then we see him in chapter 14. Chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And Thomas says at that point, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And I think at that point, Thomas is expressing what everybody else in the room is thinking. We don't really understand. You do it, I do it. We're talking to someone and they're explaining something that may be quite technical to us or maybe our mind is wandering. I don't know. But we smile and we nod and we don't really understand what's going on. And neither did they. They didn't really understand. For later on in the Upper Room Discourse, they will say, oh, now you're speaking plainly to us and not figuratively. And a lot of the things that, they, that he was teaching them, they did not understand until the Holy Spirit had come and given them that ability to call to mind and understand all the teaching of Jesus. I think Thomas is a realist. I think he is one who just calls it like it is. And it says he was not with them when Jesus came. Where was he? Uh, we can only speculate. Maybe they sent him out on an errand to get some provisions. Maybe because he was a realist and he believed that, uh, uh, that all this stuff was true, maybe his hopes were dashed, maybe he had to be alone. Maybe he walked out and separated himself. We don't know. But what we do know is that providence is at play here. Jesus is 
setting this up. Nothing happens in John's gospel by chance. And this does not happen by chance in any sense. We know that it is in God's sovereign plan that he had a purpose for Thomas to not be there so that he would be here there the next time because he wants to teach Thomas something and he wants to teach us something as well. The story is helpful for us because we see one of those first disciples struggling to believe in the resurrection. Of course they would. And for countless ages and others who also struggle to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's okay to struggle to believe that. And Thomas did. Verse 25 says, so the other disciples were saying to him, and I think verse 25 probably takes place on that first Sunday, the first Sunday that they were together, the first day of the week, the first time that Jesus appeared to them, probably he left, and not long after, um, Thomas comes in, And everybody, you know, there's this buzz in the room, and they say to him, we've seen the Lord. It's the same words that Mary said when she came to them. I have seen the Lord. I've seen Kurios, the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see. Because when they said, we have seen the Lord, he probably responded. There must more to the congregation, to the conversation, I'm sure, Because he probably said, what what do you mean Uh, you've seen the Lord? I saw him dead. No, he showed us his hands. He showed us his side. We saw the wounds. It is really him. He is really alive, literally and physically. And Thomas' response to this is, is this, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put, put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He doesn't want to just see. He wants to feel. He wants to touch. And and this odd thing that he even wants to put his fingers and his hands into the wounds. He wants proof beyond proof that Jesus is alive. Unless I see this. He wanted to see it for himself. And then he says, I will not believe. This is the strongest negative that can, can, can be expressed in, in the Greek language. It's a double negative. We don't use double negatives, but it's, it's this, I refuse to believe. I will not in no way believe unless these things, these conditions are met. I have to ask you, how would you react if you were Thomas? And when you came back, Would you automatically believe the words? Oh, great. I'm glad he's back. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Would you be skeptical? I would. If someone called you on, you got one of those phone calls, and they said, uh, hello, is this Ben Orchard? Yes. I'd just like to inform you that we put $1 million into your checking account. Thank you. I'm going to go write a check and send it off to my mortgage company right away. What would you do? The first thing you would do is you'd go to to the website of your your banking institution, and you'd probably change the password to begin with. But you would probably look at the balance, too, just to see if it were true, because you're not going to take someone's word for something like this. How much more the resurrection? It's a big thing to believe that someone who is dead has come, come to life, and you saw them killed. There wasn't anyone in any of the the instances, any of the stories of the resurrection 
whose response was, oh, well, you know, I'm really not surprised. I kind of expected that. Everyone was pulled along in their faith. Everyone struggled to believe this was difficult. And so I think we can understand what has been described by Thomas. So here are a couple of lessons. God welcomes honest questions for which there are honest answers. And I think Thomas had an honest question about the veracity, the truthfulness of those who were talking to him. I think it was honest. And God welcomes investigation and thoughtful faith. He doesn't want our faith to be flimsy and shallow and silly and emotional. He wants it to be substantive. Our faith must be based upon fact. And so he welcomes those questions. And so, again, someone calls you with a million dollars in your account, you're going to look into it, right? Same with faith, same with believing the scriptures, same with believing that Jesus lived and died and rose again. There are answers to these questions, and the questions are okay to ask. Believing in the resurrection is important, and you better get it right. We must all get it right. On the other hand, the second lesson is this which I think we see in Thomas, and this is where I would ding him. It is unwise to place conditions on God. And this is what he did. Unless you do this, God, I refuse to believe in you. We've all heard of people who have done this. Perhaps you have. Perhaps that's even part of your testimony. I don't know. But people always, you hear the story of people saying, I don't believe in God, and if he wants to show himself to me, then I'll believe in him. If he will do a miracle for me, yes, then I'll believe in him. That's unwise. God will answer those questions, but you don't, we don't place conditions on God to test him. Help me get an A on the test, and then I will serve you the rest of my life. For us, it's more, you know... God, if you meet my expectations and do what I want you to do and what I expect of you, then I will love you and I will serve you. And so when you get up in the morning, your fence is blown down. What do you do? I didn't expect that, God. It's Sunday morning. I have to preach. And when God doesn't meet our expectations, which happens often, whether it's illnesses or deaths, financial difficulties, relationship problems, physical things happening that drain our, our resources. Our expectation should be always that God will do what God will do. God will do what God wills. God will do what his will is because his will is always his glory and his will is and his glory is always what is best for us. Because he is God and we're not. And so things are always going to happen that we do not expect. Things are always going to happen that um, are not quite the expectations of what we thought God was going to do. I thought you would answer that prayer. I thought you would help me. I thought you would encourage whatever it may be. None of this changes anything about God and his character. God will do what God will do. So we can see both sides of uh, 
of uh, Thomas so far. He's got a good question. He's got a point. But at the same time, the conditions that he places are mm, not so great. So in the next couple of verses, we see this. We are given sufficient reason to believe. He's given us adequate proof to believe in him, to believe in the resurrection, to believe that he exists, to believe that he is good, to believe that he is God. It's adequate. There's proof. There's, there's, there are reasons that are given to us that are found everywhere. And he does that in this passage. And we can trust in him to do so in our lives as well. Verse 26 says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. Eight days, this is one week later on Sunday, the, the first day of the week, according to the common reckoning of time. So he appeared to them on the first day of the week, the day that he rose. Uh, he rose from the dead. He appeared to Mary. He appeared to the women. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the disciples in the room. And then for a whole week, no, no word. Then the first day of the next week, he appears again. I think he's sending us a little bit of a message here, both John and Jesus, about the Lord's day. He's setting up this pattern of when, when God's people show up, he shows up. Wherever he is, he's, wherever we are, he is in our midst. And that's why we believe so strongly to not forsake our own assembling together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another as we see the day drawing near all the more because the day is drawing near and how important it is for us on the first day of the week to gather together to worship him and to praise him. And he's setting this pattern. Even the day of Pentecost is a Sunday and those believers are gathered and the spirit comes and they worship and they praise and they preach and people come to faith on the first day, and the church is formed on the first day of the week, setting that pattern for us to this day that we worship on the first day of the week. But we also see in the story so far the replication of the exact conditions of Jesus' first appearance. But this time, Thomas is, is, not with, is, is with them. So they're gathered. We saw that last week. The doors were shut. We saw that last week. He appears. We saw that last week. He says, peace be with you. We saw that last week. So everything is replicated the exact same way that it happened the week before. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, <gasps> can you imagine Thomas being there? Comes into their midst and he turns, boom, locks eyes with Thomas. What was Thomas thinking? What was he feeling? He was probably shrinking back. This is divinely calculated for Thomas's benefit, for him to see the risen Lord. And he gives five, yea, six commands. He does give six commands in the imperative. He says, reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here your hand. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving. Be believing. Reach, see, reach, put, stop, start. He is challenging those conditions. He's challenging Thomas 
This is a direct challenge directly to what Thomas has said, and it lines up exactly what Thomas had said. Notice how each command corresponds with the demands of Thomas. Unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger under the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus says, look, put, reach, touch, believe. He's challenging him. This is not an invitation. Thomas, I would like you to believe. This is a strong, stringent challenge to Thomas to consider those conditions and to believe. Remember, Thomas said, I will not ever believe. And challenging that is stop being an unbeliever and start being a believer. Stop being characterized by disbelief and start being in a state of belief. And the word doubt is not used here, by the way. You might have a translation that uses the word doubt. That's very unfortunate because the word is belief and unbelief. Very simple. Same as last week. There are only two responses to the Lord, right? Either you believe or you're an unbeliever. There are only two kinds of people, those who are saved, those who are not, based upon whether they believe or whether they do not believe. And he's asking him to believe that he is alive. Thomas's answer in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord... And my God, Thomas immediately believes the million bucks is in his checking account. Just like Mary, just like the other disciples, as soon as he sees the risen Lord and his wounds, his skepticism vanishes. His disbelief is turned to belief. And yes, even whatever element of doubt there is, is erased because he sees the risen Lord. Notice, there is no record here of of Thomas touching the Lord. Jesus says, come, I I invite, I I challenge you, not an invitation, I challenge you, challenges you. I think if he had done that, we would have seen Thomas go over and say, well, let me just look and make sure these wounds are, no. Just seeing him and hearing him, the authority of the word of the risen Christ and seeing him literally physically alive, it was enough. Everything else, the conditions were not met, were they? They didn't have to be met. And his response is, my Lord and my God. Remember, what was it that Thomas did not believe? He did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. That was the issue. I will not believe that he's alive. I will not believe that he's risen from the dead until I see him and I touch his wounds. But his response is not, oh, now I believe that you're alive. His response is, my Lord and my God. Yes, he believes that he's alive. But the, the, the exclamation, my Lord and my God, is the, is the implication of the resurrection. This is what the resurrection means. That he is the Lord, that he is God. And this is, by the, by the way, one of the greatest confessions of faith in Christ in all of the New Testament. It tops Peter in Matthew, where Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is greater. 
This is more accurate. This is fuller. My Lord and my God, it is certainly a pinnacle of faith in John's gospel. Jesus had declared himself deity in no uncertain terms. Probably the greatest place was in John chapter 10, where he said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. And he said, alluding to the fact that he was Yahweh. But these are from the words of of the the mouth of one of his followers, a human being, who says, my Lord and my God. And I think this particular phrase is, is... is is different because when the when Mary said I've seen the Lord and when the disciples said to to Thomas we have seen the Lord they're describing the Lord as they have known him but Thomas elevates this to the an old testament description of God as Yahweh God and I think it's it's equal to sometimes in the old testament you see uh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Sometimes you see the Lord God, Yahweh Adonai, and I think that's what's equal here. The Lord God. That is the conclusion that he comes to based upon the resurrection. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. And, and, and that is the beginning of John 1, and, and now this is, this is it being worked out in, in shoe leather in real life that Thomas recognizes that God became a man in the flesh. He really lived. He really died. He really rose. He is the Lord God. And notice that Jesus accepts his worship. Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, wait a minute. Let's correct a little theology here. That's not, you're jumping to conclusions. No. He welcomes the worship. He is God. Notice he says two things. He says he is the Lord. He is God. But he also says he is my Lord. My God personal for Thomas to see the risen Lord. The conclusion that he comes to is not because someone could come to the conclusion, okay, Jesus really rose from the dead. And they could come to the conclusion, yes, he is really Lord and really God. But they may miss personal faith, right? The trust in him for salvation, the trust in him as the Lord and as God, and Thomas has not missed it. My Lord. And my God, that's why this is written for our benefit as well. So a few lessons. Specifically and personally, Jesus answers our unbelief. And and many of you know that in your walk with God and your coming to Christ, you were in a state of disbelief and you became into a state of belief because God met you somewhere personally and specifically and answered the questions that you had. He reveals himself this way, specifically and personally at the timing that he has for each person. And he answers our questions, whether they're personal, whether they're specific, but they're always sufficient for us to believe. Second of all, if Christ is risen, and indeed he has, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he has risen from the dead, 
There is no other conclusion except that he is Lord and God. What other conclusion can there be? And that's, that's Thomas's conclusion. Yes, he's alive. But the implication of that, what this means is that he is the Lord God and he is my Lord and he is my God. And that is what we come to by faith in him. And third, we all know this. Some are hard to convince. And you have been praying for people and maybe talking for, to people over, over many, many years. And you're wondering and hoping and praying that they'll come to Christ. But in the end, God does the convincing, right? God is the one who must convince them, not you. God is the one who wins them, not you. Their faith will be dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment, drawing them to himself. So, yes, study to show yourself approved. Yes, be ready to and prepared to give the reason for the hope that is in you. Reason with people and share with them the gospel that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead. Pray for them. Pray for God to open their eyes. But trust God. Because salvation is of the Lord. Be careful never to think that you are going to win this person to Christ and somehow you're going to convince them and you're going to lead them and you're going to answer all their questions. They may not have honest questions. They may have honest questions. We don't know. But God is the one that will convince them because it wasn't the disciples who convinced Thomas that Jesus was alive. It was Jesus who convinced Thomas that Jesus was alive. And so he will do for those that we want to see come to faith as well. So we have the last response of Jesus in verse 29 where we see this. We are blessed to believe in the Lord we've not yet seen. We're blessed to live in this time to believe in Jesus. We've not yet see him, seen him. But we're blessed. Jesus said to him, <clears throat> verse 29, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. I don't believe the first is a question. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Even though there's a question mark, I think it's a statement. It can be read either way in the original. I think it's a statement. Um, you have seen me and you've believed. Blessed are those who have not and believe. So goes the statement. Some see this as a, as a rebuke to Thomas. Oh, Thomas. You're only, you only believe because you've seen me. And, and seeing is believing, like, the, like the, the false followers back earlier in the book of John. They just wanted to see miracles. I don't think that Jesus would be rebuking Thomas after he just gave the greatest confession of faith in the New Testament. My Lord and my God. That's what we should know Thomas for. Those words. My Lord and my God. Not doubting Thomas. Don't be a doubting Thomas. Don't be a disbelieving Thomas. Be a believing Thomas. This is a beatitude. Like blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. And after Jesus goes into heaven throughout the rest of church history, and we are included, 
there's a blessing for us for having believed in Christ and not having yet seen him, for we will, right? We will see him. But for believing before we see. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, faith includes an element of trust in something that something that is unseen is true. Get that? Faith includes this element of trust that something that is unseen is true. That doesn't mean that faith is based on wishful thinking or that faith is believing in something that you know isn't true. Some people will define faith as that way. It doesn't mean that you don't need evidence to believe either. It means that faith is based in reality. It's believing something that is true and you're convinced of it. Faith is confidence that what is future and unseen will take place as God has said. If not, then it is just wishful thinking. But it's the confidence that God will do what he says he will do. How are we convinced? We have sufficient reason historically to believe that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived died and rose from the dead. There's the evidence of the resurrection in all the New Testament. There are the historical writings of just history itself that show what this little band of Galileans accomplished, how it changed the world, how throughout all church history the gospel spread and people lived and died for this man who rose again. There are the changed lives of people in this room that are evidenced, your life having been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who rose again for you. He is your Lord and he is your God and he changes lives and that's a proof. But in the end, just as with Thomas, God has revealed it to you. God is the one who reveals these truths to us. And so... A lesson here. Faith. We can expect God to do what he has promised. That's what faith is. Trusting and expecting, believing and living that God will do what he has said he will do because he's promised it. And he has proved himself throughout all of church history and in in our lives to be A God who always fulfills his word. He says it in the scriptures that have been delivered to us. And we have no reason to doubt him. And we will see him. We will see him. 1 Peter 1.8 says this. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter was there in that room. And this is what he wrote, probably referring to what Jesus said right at this very moment. To those who came after and had not seen him. And he says, you have not seen him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And you have great joy, a blessing given to you that is inexpressible and full of glory. This is your blessing in believing the one whom you've not yet seen. 
but we will see him. Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Amen. We'll see him. So, in conclusion this morning, what are the implications of the resurrection for you? Is he your God? Have you believed in him? Is he the Lord of your life? He is Lord of all. You don't make him Lord, but do you bow to him as Lord? And he is, is he the, the Lord who is directing your life because he is your God and you have believed in him? Don't be a disbelieving Thomas. Be believing. Not just that he rose, but that he is Lord and that he is God. We declare this truth with the Lord's table, and I invite you to it. If he is your Lord, if he is your God, I invite you to the table to remember that. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, As we partake of this bread and this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he returns. We're declaring that he, over and over again, we have to remind ourselves of the gospel, lest we forget, because we will. And, and just that, not just that he died, because that's shorthand for all of the gospel, that he lived as well. The, the bread represents his body. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and became flesh, and dwelt among us, and he suffered, and he bled, and he died, and he physically rose. And we declare that in the Lord's table this morning. And maybe this is the first time you have believed this. I invite you then as a new child of God this morning to partake of this symbolic meal representing that we believe that he really did live, really died, and really rose again. Paul says this later in 1 Corinthians where earlier he instituted the Lord's table But he said, we declare, he says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, and we're declaring the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but most have, some have fallen asleep. That's our proof. That's all we need. So we might partake of the Lord's table together. Would you pray with me? We thank you for this symbolic meal, O God, and we declare as we do as often as we meet over and over and over again that the divine Logos, the Word, became one of us and lived in this earth to be tempted in all things and yet without sin. And as the innocent one, he was put to death in our place. 
And he took upon himself as the Lamb of God all of our iniquities, and it is finished. So that we might believe by faith that we are your children, because that which was put to death rose again. And we thank you for his blood which has washed away all of our sins, past and present and future. And we declare that this morning as one family, as one body, by faith in him. Amen. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift of salvation in God.